Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. My name is John McAlevey. While this podcast is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, it is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. I truly believe that each episode is a 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. For those of you new to us, thanks for stopping by. And for those frequent flyers, I appreciate your time and hope to provide you with another entertaining program. If you missed our last podcast, you can find it and all of my other episodes by logging on to my website, which is www.quadcast.org. I spoke with Janice Shelfer, who despite an SCI during her freshman year in high school, went on to play on three Paralympic basketball teams, have her own radio show in Florida for many years, and is now a social media titan. Her Living Lucky podcast is very successful, as are her YouTube channel and Facebook morning show, Fun Day, hosted with her husband, Jason. If you do not know Jana, please listen to our conversation and check out her website, which is janashelfer.com. Hey, ever heard of spinal stimulation? Me neither, until recently, that is. It has entered my orbit, however, because the Tim and Caroline Reynolds Center for Spinal Stimulation is a thing at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange, New Jersey. Taken directly from the Kessler Foundation website, the concept is described this way, open quote, stimulating the spinal cord to regain function, end quote. Now, isn't that music to a spinal cord injured individual's ears? The website further expounds, quote, recovery from spinal cord injury, long considered impossible, is now on the horizon. The Reynolds Center for Spinal Stimulation is accelerating the pace of discoveries by studying robotic exoskeletons and stand training with simulation of the spinal cord for walking. Critical to the success of spinal stimulation is training the motor system, which relies on understanding the robotics gait and other mediums used during activity-based trainings. Spinal cord stimulation modulates neuronal networks and pathways, reawakening the cord's ability to conduct impulses to paralyzed muscles. Two methods of stimulation are being studied, transcutaneous Stimulation pads are then placed on the skin, over the spinal cord, and epidural stimulation, where pads are surgically implanted directly onto the spinal cord. Scientists and therapists already are making progress at Kessler's West Orange, New Jersey location, where they use transcutaneous stimulation to improve standing and walking, as well as arm and hand function in individuals with SCIs. Improving arm and hand function translates into significant gains for independence for individuals living with these injuries. The center will be the first East Coast facility to offer implementation of the epidural stimulator and the intensive post-operative physical training needed to achieve optimal results. Gail Forrest, Ph.D. and the center's director, reports, quote, We are seeing other effects, including improvements in bowel and bladder function, temperature regulation, and cardiovascular and respiratory function. These exciting early results inspire us to work even harder to build this line of research, end quote. Exciting doesn't even begin to describe this, if you ask me. And yours truly is hopefully in the near future going to begin a trial with this spinal stimulation. I will absolutely chronicle it 
if and when it begins, and hopefully we'll report some gains, even if they are minimal. And now on to today's show. I first became aware of my guest through a text message from a college roommate, Jacques Lamar. Embedded in the text was a seven-minute video segment from CBS News This Morning, in which Gail King brought Francesco Clark's inspirational story to life, and I hope to do so as well today. As many of you know, I like to give my episodes a title or a theme, and you tell me that they are corny. Well, today's should fall right in line because I'm calling it, quote, finally comfortable in his own skin, end quote. After this brief timeout from our good friends at Canine Companions for Independence, Francesco Clark joins me, and that is next. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a Canine Companions for Independence assistance dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of love and care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. Remember, the Quadcast can be found on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And without further ado, welcome to the show, Francesco Clark. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. I've been waiting. You know, we've been playing tag here, trying to get you to come on. Uh, we spoke before uh, we hit the record button, but uh, it's finally nice that the day is here. And uh, why don't we start at the beginning, which is usually what I like to do with most of my interviews. Why don't you tell us where did you grow up and what were some things that you enjoyed doing as a young person? I was born in New York, and then I lived the first seven years of my life in Bologna, in Italy. <laughs> and then we moved back to New York. Um, and I would split my time between, you know, the States. And when I was, and I had any time off from school, I would be in Italy with my cousins and my grandmother. So what I enjoyed doing dovetails from that experience where I, I really loved traveling. I loved experiencing other cultures. I loved um, meeting people, um, kind of seeing the world and understanding how much bigger um, a perspective or wider perspective um, you might have just by immersing yourself in another culture. Yeah. And of course, speaking Italian as well, right? You learned that at an early age? My first language was Italian. Um, it's all that we speak at home. So I am, you know, I have dual citizenship. I have Italian, um, I have an Italian passport and an American passport. That's awesome. I like to say that I have an Italian stomach. Yes, I have an <laughs> Italian tongue. I, um, 
I have to, and for me, it's in particular sweets, but I, I'll eat anything. That's awesome. Did you have any uh, favorites and and any things that uh, that you would look forward to when you would make visits back to uh, Italy? I liked, um, you know, it's it's different because the the geography of Italy is that you could drive an hour and a half or two hours and go from um, beach to mountain. And you could be in a completely different um, region of the country. And when you come to, you know, in New York, driving two hours north, you're still in New York, right. which is which is amazing to think about how big the United States is. Um, and so it would be kind of a trip to be in Italy and hop in the car and you you could change, you know, your surroundings incredibly quickly and you're... And the culture could be very, very different. And um, the different regions are, are so distinct. Um, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Francesco, how about as you got a little bit older, reached high school and then college, what were you starting to think that you were going to do with your life? So I always had the intention of becoming a diplomat. Um, and I went to Johns Hopkins with the intention to um, joined the foreign service. Um, I double majored in international relations and romance languages. And, um, I don't think my family expected me to pass the foreign service exam. Mm -hmm. So when I did, I think they got a little scared that I'd be, I'd be shipped to, um, Iraq. Yeah, right. That happened. And so, um, you know, they, they, told me that they were very nervous of me um, going into the foreign service. So I, I started working um, at a company where I made two rules for myself. I want to live in a city that I've never lived in and um, do something that I have no idea what to do. So I became a project manager for a company that makes um, legal websites in Chicago. And I had never been to Chicago. I had no idea what it meant to um, lead a team of computer programmers to make um, legal websites. And so I did it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Talk about outside of the box, right? Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things I learned um, a lot about what it means to effectively work with other people. But, you know, I, I don't know how to computer program. Mm -hmm. I don't know... Um, most of what it took to get that product made. But I had to learn how to interact with everybody that did know how to do that. And I had to um, help lead um, the teams or the team that I was working with um, in getting that done. And so it taught me a lot, um, you know, how to build relationships with people, how to... Um, have respect for other people and have them have respect for you, even if you have um, completely different backgrounds. I mean, they they knew computer language like the back of their hand, and I had no idea what that meant. Yeah. And as as I was as I was living in Chicago, about six months passed, and it was the first week of October. Um, and I remember it was on my sister's birthday on October sixth that my friends from college came to visit and I said, if it snows tonight, 
I'm moving back to New York. <laughs> and that night it started snowing and I said, all right, I have to move. I'm going to move back to New York. Sealed my really, fate. Yeah. That's awesome. And speaking of New York, let's fast forward now. Take us, tell me about the timeshare on Long Island. Boy, I'm sure life was great, you know, and soaking up the sun uh, and the beaches. Tell us about that aspect of your life. Sure. So, um, I, you know, then my first job was not a good fit. So I, I really thought long and hard about what would be appropriate for me as a career. And I love, um, culture and speaking to people, interacting with people. And so I, I decided that media, working in media would be the best fit for me. And so I applied to work at Conde Nast. And the week before Thanksgiving, they called me in for an interview. I went in for an interview while I was visiting um, New York. And I got a job offer the next uh, two days later. And then um, I was at Conde Nast for a year, recruited to work at um, Hearst Magazines at um, Harper's Bazaar Magazine. And I was there for a year and then I was promoted. And the weekend of my promotion, I was celebrating my um, semi-adulthood because at 24 years old, I don't think... Um, I'm realizing now that I wasn't completely adult. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was celebrating and I had a timeshare house in Long Island with friends of friends of friends. So they were complete strangers. Mm -hmm. um, and it was Memorial Day weekend, 70, 78 degrees, um, not a cloud in the sky. I was at the house for no more than two or three hours. And the metal ring ladder that they normally put in the deep end of the pool, they had put in the shallow end. Nice. So, you know, and I've gone swimming my entire life. I, I know my way around um, the water and, and a pool. But the second that I dove in, I realized I dove into the shallow end. And oh, as soon God. as my chin hit the bottom of the pool with such force that it shattered my um, C3, C4 vertebrae, two bumps in the back of the, two inches above that little bump in the back of your neck. Mm -hmm. And I was underwater, face down, my eyes were open, I'm completely conscious, and I knew exactly what happened. Ugh. It's the craziest thing. It's like um, this instinctive... Um, knowing um, that your body just can figure out what what went wrong and what's happening. And it felt like two metal rods um, slamming into each other. And I could feel the echo throughout my entire body. <laughs> yeah. And as soon as that happened, um, I felt this nothingness everywhere. Um, and I could feel the pressure building in my spine, in my neck. And I had my eyes open and I could see the little bubbles of, of air floating up from my mouth. And what's interesting about this moment as I reflect on it now is that I never had the fear of death. I heard my mother's voice um, echoing in my mind. And it was saying, do you realize how much work you're going to have to do to get better? Yeah. In that statement, it made me realize that the fact that I was technically drowning because I was alone and paralyzed, face down in a pool in water, mm. um, never came across my mind. For some reason, 
um, I had this, I had this kind of, I don't know, premonition or just ideology of somehow I would get out and somehow it would get better. Mm. And so somebody luckily walked into the house, saw me face down, lifted my head above the pool. And I said, call 911. You just saved my life. And, um, at that point, fight or flight took over. And for me, fight took over. Yeah. And I told, you know, I said, stabilize my neck, take me out of the pool, call, you know, do this, do that. And, you know, became very bossy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you need to be. Yeah, it's, it, it, it wasn't, it was almost like the words were coming out of my mouth, but I never, I never prepared. You know, there, there's no, there's no guidebook for what's going to happen in, um, in the emergency that, that I had gotten in or that, you know, we all get in and something happens to everybody at some point in their lives where they're, you just, your instincts take over. And, um, I was helicoptered over to SUNY Stony Brook and, um, I met with the surgeon, um, and the nurses, and they kept telling me that I had to uh, legally um, or verbally um, sign all these papers that would say that if I were to pass, um, you know, it wouldn't be pretty much signing my life away. Oh, gosh. Uh, because the likelihood of my surviving not only the stabilization of my spine, but the next two years of my life was less than 20%. Oh, isn't that welcoming? Isn't that a welcoming thought? Geez, here you are (laughs) almost drowning in a pool now, paralyzed. And, and they're, they're laying this on top of that. Wow. And, you know, if you're looking at it from this empirical point of view, like a list of facts on a piece of paper, um, my left lung had collapsed by this point. My left vocal cord was now failing and, and would fail shortly thereafter. And I would be on uh, life support for um, about two weeks wow. there. And I rem- it's crazy because I'm sure very many people um, feel the same. But I remember every single part of it. I remember the color of the tiles of the operating room. I remember the smell of what it felt like to be in the ICU mm-hmm. and to be intubated. I could, I remember the, the pressure in my throat and how that would hurt after a couple of days um, of being intubated and, you know, waking up at 3.30 in the morning and still... Um, being frightened by yeah. seeing all of these machines that are beeping and humming um, next to my body. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny you should say that because I can recall uh, laying in, in the emergency room and, you know, just staring straight up because that's what we were doing, laying flat on our back. And there was a spider that was crawling along the uh, the ceiling. And I just kept thinking, if that guy's going to come down here, he's going to be able to get me because I can't move anything to knock him off of me or, or sway him off. 
But uh, yeah, it's almost like what, what we lose in and we feel numbness in most of our body, some of our other senses just become that more acute. Um, and and I know that that certainly is the case for me. Uh, Francesco, how about this? Um, I, I saw in the interview that you did with Gail King for CBS uh, Morning News, you had this comment, 30 seconds prior to my accident, I felt proud and accomplished. And 30 seconds after, I felt like the biggest failure in the world. What was the thinking behind each one of those statements? I mean, it, it was... It was a stark reality of how quickly life can change. And and it was a stark reality that it didn't feel, it felt unjust that on such a beautiful day, um, on the day, the week that I got promoted, um, everything was perfect. Everything was going right. I was proving, I was proving to myself that I could be independent. As a young adult, I was proving to my family and my friends that I could be independent. And then 30 seconds later, I did feel like the biggest idiot because at the end of the day, and for the next year, strangers would come up to me and say, but how could you dive into the shallow end of a pool? And, and you know, nobody's asking that question with any ill will sure. or any bad intention. Yeah. But when when many people keep asking you that question, you kind of start to think like, maybe I'm an idiot. I don't know. <laughs> it was an accident. I didn't do it on purpose. Right. Um, but it does, it did, it did kind of strike a chord at me where, you know, they would get to go home and they would get to go out to dinner with their friends and move on with their lives. But I would be in bed yeah. at two in the morning trying to answer that question. Mm-hmm. And there was also a sense of survivor's guilt that I could not identify what it was until many years later. But survivor's guilt felt to me like I could handle getting through what was happening. I can handle the trauma, um, that initial trauma, um, of the spinal cord injury and then readjust. But I wasn't the only person that felt that trauma. My fam- my mother and my father had this deep sense and that deep feeling of the trauma and they went through it with me. And And all that I wanted to do was to make it better. And I wanted to fix that feeling sure. for them wanted to show them that I didn't have to be a worry. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, and, your, speaking yeah. of your family, Francesco, tell us the story of what your doctor initially told you and your parents about your present condition and the life he thought you were going to lead. I was told that I would never breathe on my own, that I would never speak, forget about moving my arms, um, and don't even think about my legs. And he said that to me before surgery and then after surgery he said it in front of me to my mother and my father as i was waking up from anesthesia and my father's a medical doctor and my mother has her phd i mean we're very they're very knowledgeable people but my father turned to him and said i 
really hope you don't speak to your other patients like this. Because you could just say, I don't know. You don't have to, you don't have to squash um, anybody's dreams and anybody's kind of will to, to want to get up. Yeah. Uh, and luckily, for some reason, um, my diaphragm started to work. You know, they said, okay, we'll try removing the breathing tube. And I remember the nurse was telling my mother and she said, you know, there's a very good chance he's not going to be able to breathe. And my mother had a conversation with her and said he would want to take this risk. Yeah. Luckily, my diaphragm started to work, um, but it wasn't strong enough. So my blood oxygen levels were still very low. And the occupational therapist at Stony Brook was very nice and um, also very boring. <laughs> because she brought this like little cup with a red ball in it that you would have to blow for two hours to rebuild your lung capacity. Oh yeah, yeah, I had that stupid uh, thing uh, too. Uh, yeah, I mean an aspirator, I think they call it. I could not care less about doing that. So <laughs> my best friend and my sister brought in speakers into my hospital room, and they started playing ABBA. <laughs> and started singing really bad karaoke uh, in the ICU. And, and I started to um, build up my lung capacity and, and get my diaphragm stronger and just <clears throat> always focus on getting rid of the phlegm that I had built up from the pool water um, in my lungs. And I could still taste it. It was mm -hmm. so, you know, it was that thing that just keeps reminding you of what happened and you could still taste it days later. And yeah. uh, but for me, it was about making it fun. So how do I do the physical therapy and occupational therapy that I need to do, but how do I make it fun? And um, the biggest part of my recovery, the biggest part of my recovery has always been in large part due to the fact that I'm a dreamer. And I daydream all the time. But what I started to do was to think about these dreams that I would have about my life mm -hmm. and write them down yeah. and making part of them true. And then little by little, I started to realize, you know what? The surgeon was wrong about this one thing about me breathing. And then about six months later, my vocal cords started to come back. And so I could speak beyond a whisper. And then I said, he's also wrong about my my voice. And then I was starting to twitch my shoulders and move my arms, not in a very um, smooth or controlled way, but I was starting to flail them around. Mm -hmm. So he was wrong about that. And then I just kept thinking like, if he's wrong about those three things, he could be wrong about so much more, which oh, is a wonderful thing. Absolutely. I, I can remember over over the years and in the beginning, I had so many doctors coming in and out of my room and some of them you know, felt sorry. Some of them were very compassionate. Some of them were, you know, strictly just the facts, ma'am, kind of a thing they would tell you. Uh, and, and then there were some that were just rotten. It sounded like that guy that you had, um, I, I would affectionately refer to a doctor like that as the bedside manner of a bedpan. I mean, he just seemed like it, it almost was crushing you, as your father said. You, you should never speak to someone like that. What was the story um, where, what did your mother 
say to you when the doctor said that? I thought that that was cute. I saw something from uh, that was also in the Gail King interview. What did your mom tell you to do? Yes, my mother, when the doctor said I'd never be able to breathe or speak or move my arms or my legs, my mother turned to me and in Italian, she said, sposta qualcosa, move something. Can I twitch my shoulder? And she looked back at the surgeon. She said, you don't know our son. And that was the first moment since I dove into the pool and shattered my spine where I realized I was not alone. Yeah. I felt like because I have such a strong and solid and loving support from such amazing people that if they thought that I was going to get better, of course I was going to get better. Yeah. And they were in your corner, right? They were in my corner when I, when I didn't have, I didn't have a voice to speak for myself. I mean, I literally did not have a voice also. Yeah. So they would have to advocate for me because my vocal cord was paralyzed and I was on a ventilator. And, um, you know, even if my vocal cord wasn't paralyzed, I'm on a ventilator. You know, there's a huge tube down your throat. And mm. so the people that really are there with you every day are, that is what made me appreciate the love that you can find in life. Yeah. And, you know, Francesco, a, a lot of people don't understand, you know, they know when when a friend or uh, someone they know has a spinal cord injury, how rough that is for for that person physically. But, you know, now that you are in your position and, uh, you know, out of the hospital and confined to a wheelchair, how are you doing mentally? I mean, that's the side that people don't really know that can be oftentimes worse than the the, the fact that you can't do stuff like that physically, but how your mind finally has to come to grips with this whole new world you're finally living. I think initially... I didn't come to grips with it for three years. And I did feel I went through um, a period of dealing with it, with the trauma where I became very depressed for three years. And the only thing that I would do was physical therapy and occupational therapy, you know, six hours a day to the point where I felt robotic Mm -hmm. and very one note. I didn't feel human yeah. at all. And I got to the point where I realized that's not who I am. Um, and I have to be more than just this. I have to be more than just trying to wiggle my pinky. That's not, even before my injury, I was so much more than that. So why, why would I define myself by, by what I could not do physically. And so it all changed the day that Christopher Reeve passed away because it came as such a shock to me that Superman was suddenly gone. And he was a huge advocate for people with spinal cord injury, but for anybody that didn't feel like they have a voice. Yeah. I, so for me, it meant I had to take responsibility or what happened in my own life. And I literally looked in the mirror for the first time in three years. Um, because up until that point, 
I avoided my reflection because of the wheelchair. Interesting. Uh, but it all changed that day. It was, it was so strange. It was like a light switch went off. I acknowledged what happened. It didn't bother me um, anymore to notice the wheelchair. But a day before that, it did. Um, and it was a wake up call. It really was. Yeah. yeah. I have to tell you on a, a personal story, I was doing outpatient therapy at Kessler Institute um, for Rehabilitation in West Orange, New Jersey, the day that they were bringing Christopher Reeve in. And I can tell you, Francesco, it was it was so eerie and it was so weird and it was so wrong that the paparazzi were behind the building like in tree stands that that they would you know people would use to go hunting with telephoto lenses to to try and get the first picture of superman you know the spinal cord injured guy and i just thought to myself Here's someone who made his living in front of the camera and always had to look his best and be in great shape. And and now people wanted to like prey on the fact that all of that was gone and he couldn't, you know, he couldn't make himself look great. And he, he wasn't on his best on his best day. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, this is awful. But, yeah, that was uh, he was at Kessler when I was doing outpatient therapy. You know, what's interesting about that story is. um when they announced that he had passed, I was getting into the van to go to Kessler. That's and when I had right. and I was doing outpatient at Kessler as well. That's I was wild. in the West Orange. You know, I wonder if we've crossed paths in, in all these years. I've been, uh, I've been, you know, being at Kessler for, for a hundred years now, but since, since 92, um, after my in accident, I went there for, you know, inpatient therapy. And then I've been going there for outpatient and I'm actually working there now as the peer counseling coordinator. So uh, it's funny, I'm sure maybe we've crossed paths now and then, you know, you never know. It's a small world, right, Francesco? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, now this is great. After you've had your wake up moment, your sort of come to Jesus moment and have this new mindset, let's get on to some some really fun and exciting things. Clark's Botanicals, the skincare line. How did you come up with the idea? And then how long did it take for you to sort of get it off the ground? I never came up with the idea for Clark's Botanicals. It was part of my emotional and psychological recovery from my from my spinal cord injury because my love my injury is so high up my skin stopped sweating and that day when christopher reeve passed away um you know my hero i looked in the mirror and i was just like i don't look like myself i feel strong i am strong i feel confident i am confident i don't look confident i don't look strong my mm. skin i just i look like a different person and by this point, I had tried the $300 creams, the $3 creams prescription, everything, and nothing worked. And so I turned to my father, the medical doctor and homeopath, and I said, you have to help me because I just want to look, I want to look happy because mm -hmm. I am happy. And I want that inner strength to, to kind of come forth and show, I wanted to show, um, and the reason for that is that I wanted to connect with other people. Now I wanted, um, I wanted to meet new friends. I wanted to, um, not be nervous about going into Manhattan. I wanted to go out to, um, 
there was so much that I wanted to do. Um, and so for the first time when I looked in the mirror, I decided that I'm not going to wear the same t-shirt that I wear every day. I'm not going to wear the same paper hospital pants that I would wear every day. I'm not going to shave my head bald once a week. Um, and with that, you know, my father and I and my mother, it became very much a family affair. We started to look at botanical extracts and vitamins and different ingredients that we could mix together in our kitchen here in Westchester in New York. And it took us five years and 78 different versions until we found what is today our Jasmine Catalyst Complex, which is this exact formula that's proprietary to Clark's Botanicals, but it rebalances your skin. You know, it's immunostimulating to your skin, so it's calming and moisturizing, but it's helping to bring a vitality to your skin, a rosy glow um, that just left my skin. Um, but it also made me, you know, smoothed out any fine lines and wrinkles. It made me look good. Yeah. Anyway, I made all this stuff in the kitchen. I had it on my desk. And then I noticed that instead of having 12 vials of it on my desk, one day I get to my desk and there are only seven of it. And my mother, I realized, had been taking some of the vials and using them herself. Because oh. she realized, and I looked at her and she was like, well, yeah, if you're using it, and your skin is so sensitive to all, all the ingredients and it's working for you, then it has to work for me. <laughs> and so she started giving it away to my dad's patients, a lot of whom, uh, many of whom um, are undergoing chemotherapy and have sensitivities to ingredients. Um, and so they started asking for it, but we were just giving it away. And it wasn't until my former boss at Harper's Bazaar called me in to meet with her that... Um, she said, you look the same. You're just sitting, but you yeah. look like you're about to get up. And so you have a glow um, about you. I, I mean, Clark's Botanicals, it was just part of the process of um, trying, you know, getting the formulations ready. But it was just for me. It wasn't like it wasn't a product made to sell anywhere. But then the magazine wanted to feature it um, in the September issue. And I said, mm, thanks, but no thanks. And they said, no, no, before, you know, before you turn away from this um, opportunity, I'm going to put you on the phone with the beauty director. This is about three weeks after I met with the editor-in-chief. Okay. Just, just, she just wanted to see how I was doing. And so then I got on the phone with the beauty director and she said, we're putting in the magazine, whether you like it or not. You have six months to find packaging um, and find a factory, but this is happening. And it was very much the same feeling as when my mother and my father were next to my hospital bed after I was wheeled out of surgery, where I had these other people outside of myself that believed in me so much that I said, okay, well, this is going to work. Um, because if, you have, if I have so much support from this group of people, then I have to make it work. And Clark's Botanicals very much became... A part of a part of my DNA because skincare, and for me, it's about immunostimulating clean skincare. So we are clinical and clean. Where mm -hmm. clean beauty means that you don't use any ingredients that are dubious that could be bad for you. We only use scientific ingredients that are 
eco-search that are proven to be safe, but also do more than just be safe. They have to make your skin look better. And then we combine them with the best of science. And um, the best of science and the best of nature, um, if you're spending $75 on a small jar, that's a lot of money. And that's you know how much our moisturizer costs. So mm-hmm. I always make sure that we work very hard and making sure that your skin looks better after you use our products than before, because otherwise, what's the point? Madonna, Meryl Streep, and Julianne Moore. Wow. What was your reaction when you found out that they were consumers? And on a side note, what can your product do for a 53-year-old gentleman who's trying to turn the clock back himself, uh, asking for a friend, that is? Yes. Well, um, I think your friend would look like uh, you had a makeover. I mean, it just really just re-energizes your complexion and um, plumps. Your skin just looks more plump, lifted, and revitalized. It just, it almost looks like you took a that nap um, that everybody says that they need to take that mm-hmm. makes them feel incredibly rested. That's kind of the overall look that, that you start to get when you start to use skincare that really works for your for yourself. I guess the beauty of all this, Francesco, is that, you know, now running this business, it's given you, you know, a whole lease on life, right? It's it's given you a purpose to uh, to get up and not think about being disabled all the time. You're thinking, hey, I've got a business to run here. You know, it's ironic because you would think that, but it actually made me think the opposite. It made me think more about the fact that I'm disabled and what should I be doing now that I have a sense of purpose and more of a voice because of Clark's Botanicals. And it really made me question that sense of responsibility that I wanted. And I, and I really searched for it um, for most of my life. And so connecting Clark's Botanicals to the Christopher Reeve Foundation became incredibly important to me. And meeting with Peter Wilderotter and Maggie Goldberg and then Alexandra Reeve Gibbons, Matthew Reeve and Will Reeve and how, how much energy they have um, to advocating and looking for a cure while thinking about the care for people with spinal cord injuries is something that I realized was one of my missions. Um, so I was able to think about my former life in fashion, my spinal cord injury, and my new life in the beauty industry, and give it all a sense of meaning, and give back to the Reed Foundation. And becoming one of their national ambassadors for me was is a huge honor that I always think about how we can push more on innovation um, with, with research. And then joining the board of the New York Stem Cell Foundation and the Johns Hopkins Institute of Bioethics, I don't, I'm never the person in the room that's afraid of asking the stupid question, but maybe other people are afraid of asking. So I'm a little bit like that Columbo um, person in the room that might ask a question that seems obvious, but might not be addressed. And I... That's just who I am. You know, I, I like, um, I like stimulating the conversation in the room and I like pushing the boundaries a little bit 
so that there can be progress. Yeah. Um, you know, speaking of do, stimulating, yeah. are you familiar with uh, spinal stimulation? It's something that uh, they're starting to do, or they did start at Kessler before COVID hit. Um, and it's it's shown some really, really exciting results. And I am hoping to, uh, my doctor's going to get me in one of the trials there. I know that the Reef Foundation has a lot to do with that as well. So uh, that's something when you when you listen back to the podcast, I talk about that in my opening. But are you familiar with that at all? I am, and it's incredible. I mean, I it's just I was talking about it with Henry Stifel um, a couple of months ago, and he had a spinal cord injury, and he he actually um, had the foundation before it was the Reef Foundation, um, and. It's incredible to hear from from him um, and seeing what Kessler's doing, what they're doing. Um, I think it's at Emory. They're doing a lot of research for it as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I did the treadmill study at Kessler with Dr. Gail Forrest. And, yep. uh, she's such a, so, such a great and, and just arduous worker. She's and a star. She really is. I mean, she, what she does on our behalf is amazing. The hours they put in. Also, Dr. Kirschbloom, I'm sure you know him. Oh, he's, yeah. He's been yes. my doctor for uh, for 100 years. He's the one that, that came up with the idea of wanting to put me um, into uh, one of the stimulation uh, trials. And, you know, the good thing about it is, Francesco, I'm just doing some research and reading up about it, is that not only is it, you know, helping with stuff like, you know, moving again and, and walking and, and, um, you know, being able to use your hands and things like that. But it's shown some, some promise with, with bowel and bladder function and with, you know, temperature regulation. I mean, stuff that people don't yeah. know about, you know, um, things like that. I mean, how exciting is that? And that it, you know, there might be a light at the end of the tunnel for, for, for folks like us and for people that come behind us. There always is. You know, and that's my, I'm always half glass full. And they're always, no matter how bad of a day you might be having today, you still can go to bed tonight thinking of a better morning. And I just am constantly surprised at 43 years of age of how many times I have been dumbfounded by the wonderful kind-heartedness and creativity of people. I mean, if you look at science 20 years ago and today, there was zero hope for spinal cord injury, um, anything. Yeah. And when you look at where, how far we've come today, we've come to the point where now the scientist that said something was impossible said it's unstoppable. And I just think that that is the most exciting part of life mm -hmm. because, you know, for us, it's about regeneration in our spinal cords. But what about somebody who has a cancer or tumors, or stuff like, like that? Of, yeah. Of a disease. Everybody, something happens to everybody. Yeah. Um, and you, and that way of kind of having that plasticity and adaptation and um, 
resilience, um, I think, is... Okay, Francesco. And usually what I like to do is I finish my interviews with one question that has uh, become my signature. And it is, if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied once again, what is the first thing that you would do? You know, the first thing that I would do um, would be just to do those mundane things that I might have taken for granted um, before. So wake up and get ready on my own and go a walk into town here in Rossville and Something as as um, and routine as going to Starbucks alone, yeah. and meeting people the way, and then you know walking to the library and meeting people along the way, and and ultimately that dream that I'm having about this fantastic, um, you know, in your fingers, it's not any different from the dream that I had before. And it has been my pleasure to have Francesco Clark of Clark's Botanicals join me today to tell his inspirational story and to just be a new friend. I look forward to meeting you someday, hopefully at Kessler. Francesco, thank you so much again for your time and for coming on. Absolutely. And we are happy to extend a special discount code to all of your listeners. If you go to clarksbotanicals.com in checkout, when it asks for a code, just type in the quadcast 25 and you will get 25% off anything that you buy. That's awesome. I hope that all of my listeners, all three of them, my mother and my sister and my buddy uh, from college, hopefully they will take you up on the offer and I will too. Boy, do I love it when a guest brings gifts. Make sure to take advantage of Francesco's generous offer at clarksbotanicals.com. And that will do it for this week's edition of the Quadcast. Thanks, as always, to Chris Parapesco at Lime Studios TV in New York City. Until we meet again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care.